We'll turn in the Word of God again today. We'll turn this time to Matthew and to the chapter 21. Matthew, the 21st chapter. And we'll read 15 and 16. And part of this, of course, is our Savior quoting the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 8. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased, indignant, 16, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow together before Him in prayer. And I'm sure you will recall that over the last number of months, we have been since the beginning of June, the first Lord's Day in each month in the morning time, we have taken the topic of the importance and value of the Sunday School. And today brings that series to its conclusion. So number five, in the series and the final message today. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. We're thinking of teaching in the Sunday school, or indeed the children's meeting, but teaching in the Sunday school today. Our Heavenly Father, again, we look to Thee for Thy blessing and for Thy honor and mercy. We thank Thee, as we have already thought in Psalm 8, that God is properly glorified by us. And yet we can't add anything to His glory because He is infinite in that glory, infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, infinite in grace, infinite in justice, infinite in truth. Every one of Thine attributes are right up on the level of perfection, They cannot be any better than they are, for thou art perfect. We are so imperfect. We are so full of sin. We are so prone to wander. We need constantly to be instructed. We need to be directed. We need to be what the Word of God has been sent to us to do, to reprove and rebuke and correct and instruct us in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so we pray today that the Word of God will have that impact, even though it's going down a particular channel and going in a specific direction. And we are thinking of the Sunday school and, by extension, the children's meeting and every children's work that we run and oversee. But, Lord, we know by now that none of us is excluded here because we may not all be Sunday school teachers, indeed cannot be, but we can all have a valuable input into this work 
And we pray that we shall, even as we uphold it in prayer and spiritual concern. Come and answer prayer. Do us good today. We know that this morning is really growing again out of last night and various items that were raised then will again be in our thoughts today. Bless thy word, thy direction. Unto our hearts we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. The grace of God is wonderfully exalted in the conversion of children. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, London Baptist preacher, used to say that nothing quite tears down the pride of the devil as much as the conversion of a child. Because, and he quoted 1 Corinthians 1 in the verse 28 at that point, God chooses things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. And when you think of it, for the devil to lose his prey, and that prey is in his mind a vulnerable child, is for him a great and mighty humiliation. He hates to see the praise of youngsters directed towards Almighty God. And we saw that in our Bible readings today, both in Psalm 8 and in particular in Matthew chapter 21. The devil was up on his hind legs. And he comes to Christ. Don't you see what's going on here? Isn't it time that you rebuked what you're seeing? And our Lord, of course, endorses the praise of children coming his way. Because conversion means that the devil, for all of his considerable intelligence, he has been unable to continue to deceive even the little child. They have come to see through his deceptions, and they see him for what he is, a liar and a murderer of the bodies and souls of men. So God is glorified, and in proportion as God is being glorified, so the devil in his kingdom is being degraded, and that's what we want to see. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that Sunday schools and Sunday school workers are the enemy and the target of Satan. Nor is it surprising that the devil should tempt God's people into thinking, Sunday schools, you know, they're a secondary work or a tertiary work, or put them away down the list of priorities there. They're really, when you think of it, just a little bit of waste of time and a, a little bit of waste of energy, something that you just tag along to the bulk of the work of the church. Don't direct too many resources to it. Just allow it to strangle itself, shrivel up and die. That is the devil's line. And when you hear it, rebuke it as that. God's people often express a certain amount of pity for their pastors. And we're always very delighted when that happens. Oh, they say the minister of the word, the preacher of God's truth, must be under particular attack by the enemy. He has to fight extraordinary battles. He is and he does. But the same goes for Sunday school teachers and children's workers because they are being pushed forward to inflict upon the devil some of the most humbling defeats that he will ever sustain. That is one reason why the devil will pull out all the stops to discourage and to depress every Sunday school teacher he can get an inroads in on. 
ever notice that? I read a book not long ago, and in the book it said quite alarmingly that Sunday school teachers are often afflicted with bad attitudes. They are found whining, complaining, and singing the blues. Somebody saying this, not me. I'm quoting them. I hope our Sunday school teachers aren't like that, but I know the susceptibility to all of us to be in this condition. They sit on top of Defeat Hill, licking their wounds, blaming everyone everywhere for their defeats. That may or that may not be so, but I was certainly intrigued by another comment which said, 80% of the workers in churches are right on the verge of quitting all the time. They are looking for an opportunity to get out gracefully. So, I apologize for not exactly hitting the most positive of notes in the introduction here today when I'm drawing attention to these things, but this is what people are saying, and I'm sure they're saying it out of a basis of knowledge and experience as well. I can't quite verify the claim here of 80%, but I do know the basic claim itself is accurate, and the reason, as we've already said, is very obvious. People are under the devil's attack because they're in the front line of taking the battle to the gates of hell. You will receive the arrows coming out and all the furious weaponry that he can use against you. Anybody who brings children to worship God, to seek him, to call upon his name, they're going to find that they will come up against a tide of satanic discouragement and obstruction. They'll find they're engaged here in a very costly and in a very great ministry. And for that reason, the work among the children and young people of any church will deserve the protection and the concentrated prayers of the entire church body. And I trust that you have the work of the children in this church very much upon your heart and regularly on your prayer list because it needs to be. But the question is, how are the children to be gathered and how are they to be taught? And that's our subject today. And in tackling that subject and coming down this particular line, we're going to be scrolling through quite a number of practical suggestions, guidelines as well, and I trust get away from the negativity and on to the ground of encouragement for those who are engaged in Sunday school and children's and youth work. So first of all, we're looking at the assembling of the Sunday school. The assembling of the Sunday school. And the first practical suggestion is this. It concerns the method to be used for gathering children. And this method has, over the past 50 years at least, passed from being a mere profitable innovation to becoming an absolute necessity. These days... We really must transport the majority of the children. Do a little bit of study into Sunday schools. See those that have gone forward are still in existence and trying to claim more ground, and you will find the secret behind them all is transportation. The size is going to depend upon whether we perform the role of the Hide paper and gather and transport the pupils. Does that mean a minibus? 
A minibus or two or three or whatever, of course, it does. And if you were here on a Monday night, you'll see we have quite a few buses going out. Same for a Tuesday night, a couple of minibuses on a Sunday morning and more buses on a Sunday night. Quite apart from the whole thought of transportation, something has to be done for children, even those who live within walking distance of the church. And so often we can say, well, you know, they just live around the corner. Why do they need transport to bring them along? Why? Because there are so many distractions along the way, and because children are so naturally fickle. One week you'll have them, the next week you don't. And as a Sunday school grows, branching out way beyond the boundaries of their own church members' children, and has a handle in the community, and is reaching out to the streets and the neighborhoods round about, as that happens, faithful believers need to go around the streets on a regular basis, knocking the doors where those enrolled pupils live, leading bands of children on those buses to church. Those people are the Pied Pipers. And like the minibus teams, they get to know their children, the homes, the parents, the grandparents really well. You know what? There is no substitute for this, because children will not find some kind of an automatic magnetism to the church. They need to be brought. There is no getting away from that. But not only transportation. We're thinking here about registration. And our children, when they come, they are registered. They have to be registered in order to come. Forms have to be filled in. We know all about that. It gives a sense of efficiency, and it is efficient. And we are properly recording all of the newcomers, and that procedure has a good effect upon the children as well. They respect it. It's going to settle them. As they arrive, they realize things are being properly done, systematically done, right from the very beginning, before they even get to their classes, and that degree of organization will promote respect from children and from the parents as well. Now, maybe we've got a child that doesn't come for a while. Well, absentees should be promptly followed up. A Sunday school will only groom and only develop in the way that it should if it is supported by continuous visitation. And that is something that has to be underlined again and again. It is an idea to have special days right through the year. So we're talking about designation here. I'm going to give you a quote. We stress every special day that we can think of. This is a person who runs a very famous Sunday school. And then he says we make up a few of our own. You should have a special day of some kind every month, an extra special day every quarter, a super special day twice a year. As long as special days, here's the important thing, involve people, they will bring out people. Our two super Sundays are Christmas Sunday, and then he says about six months later, our holiday Bible school program. And those Great days for special emphasis where even more resources are concentrated. They are good for many reasons. It's easier to get your people to invite friends to Sunday school. 
if there's a special day with maybe a card produced to invite them along on that special day. It will also give an excellent opportunity to introduce. Here are our teachers and also here are our facilities and they can see those facilities, those people who normally never attend. On a special day, they can see all of that. And also, we all know the impact of a crowd. A crowd draws a crowd. How many times have we heard that? Whenever you see a crowd, you're saying in your mind, something is happening there. So attention is drawn. There is considerable advantage, especially when we're going around as we do in working class districts, to be recruiting to Sunday school all the time. So the children are arriving in either a constant flow or at least a steady trickle. And when that's the case, these new children, they readily adapt to the prevailing atmosphere that's already there. And if we have achieved reverent behavior and good attention in the meetings we have in our Sunday schools, then it'll be secure when those, those new pupils come in. How are new children likely to react to the rather strange and unique environment of the Sunday school? What will they make of worship? What will they make of prayers? What will they make of Bible readings and instruction and teaching? Well, the answer is they'll adapt to the behavior of the overwhelming majority. They'll listen. They'll sing. They'll pray. They'll give attention with the crowd. And it can be a challenge to that reverent, to that listening atmosphere that no doubt we have built up and cultivated over many months and many years. It can be a challenge, but all of a sudden you get an extra surge of people coming in that aren't used to that Sunday school atmosphere. A bit of a challenge, but the best advice is treasure the hard-won atmosphere that you have created and take no risks and recruit all the time. Don't be relaxing on that. So that's the assembly of the Sunday school. Think then secondly about the atmosphere of the Sunday school. Atmosphere of the Sunday school. We're already traveling that direction where reverence is so important. You need to remember the importance of peace, speed. Don't have those massive breaks that betray the fact that no prior thought or not much prior thought has gone into this, as though we're merely kind of grasping in midair for the next idea to come landing into our minds. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that now. Get it organized. In adult services, it's right for us to be a little on the slow side in terms of our worship. We're Presbyterians here, so we're pretty conservative in our worship, and we're not up jumping over the seats and clapping and getting on and getting ourselves worked up into a frenzy. We don't, I don't like, and I'm assuming because you're here, you're not a big fan of that kind of, as I see it, unstructured, disorganized chaos. We like time to think. We dislike being rushed through the elements of the service within decent taste. We like it to be done decently and in order in those adult services. But we need to recognize that in Sunday school, the standard is quite different. The rule is you don't give the children one half second to breathe or think. 
Their minds mustn't be allowed to wander from the track. And so the class has to keep moving quickly from one item onto the next, onto the next, long pauses, guaranteeing that the attention or the reverence and both of the children are going to be lost. There must be peace with one thing joining on immediately onto the next in the Sunday school children's meeting to sustain that attention, that order, that reverence that is necessary. Another piece of advice that has been handed down through the years from generations of Sunday school workers concerns discipline. Sometimes you find in the Sunday school, as well as in the children's meetings, that they can develop some serious flaws. Because maybe a leader here or there is much too lenient towards one child, or maybe a number of children who are behaving badly, and one or two children may be allowed to wreck everything. Because the leader is reluctant to take them home and say to their parents, you know what, I'm sorry, but we can't cope with your lad or your girl right now. Maybe he or she could try again next year, and we'll all give it another go then. But right now, they're not there to listen. They're there to wreck and destroy. Facing the facts not only saves a class from usefulness or a meeting from uselessness, it might be well in the best interest of the child. If we're not getting our message over to some badly behaved child in the class, the fact that he or she is excluded from Sunday school are shut out of the children's meeting and its activities until their behavior improves may be the best message we can deliver. Through this, the child will hear the law, the consequences of their sinful activity if they don't get the gospel. And sometimes the Sunday school can be a little net that's going out and we're transferring a few fish into like a garden pond. And we're devoting our entire attention to those few fish. And if some of the few fish that we have go absent, and others among them misbehave, and we are putting all of our work and all of our energy, four months, even years, into getting those same children who don't really want to be there, and when they are there, don't want to listen to what's going on or take part in what's going on in a constructive way, if we are putting all of our energy, calming them down, giving them another chance and another chance, followed by another chance, and we are spending all our time and all our energy on the few, what is happening? A thousand unchurched children in the city are remaining untouched and neglected. We must accept. This is reality. Some of those children will stop coming. And after reasonable attempts have been made to bring them back, we might have to give up on them and replace them with others. Some are going to behave extremely badly, and they will abuse this chance, another chance, further chances to improve. Well, then we have to give up on them. It's like the disciples. 
They were sent out with the message of the gospel. And the fact of the matter is, whether they will hear, whether they will forbear, the message was delivered. And if they did forbear, Jesus said to His disciples, what? Matthew 10 and 14, shake the dust of your feet as you leave that city. You're not going back. They have refused to hear. You move on and you get an audience of people who will hear and preach the gospel to them. He did that with the 12. He did that with the 70. And that surely should guide us here as well. We move from the assembly and the atmosphere of the Sunday school to the application of the Sunday school. What about the Sunday school teachers and children's workers' own performance? And we're not talking about performance-related pay because we don't have any of that. It's all volunteer, and I'm very conscious of that, and I thoroughly appreciate those who give their time and talent every time we meet in this fashion. But what about the role, some practical guidelines about the role of the the teacher? What should the teacher aim for, and what pitfalls should be avoided? Well, it is important to remember that every Sunday school teacher has a number of roles, actually. One role is that of an evangelist, maybe a pastor, that of an example, that of a friend to the children. And all of those roles have to be combined within that Sunday school teacher. If you're a teacher, first and foremost, you are an evangelist. And it's the loss of that conviction. This is why I'm teaching Sunday school, because I am an evangelist. It's the loss of that conviction that begins to be the beginning of failure for many a teacher and the collapse of many a Sunday school. Lose sight of that focus, you might as well close the doors. You are an evangelist. You're also a pastor, teacher, an educator, in other words, to those to seek and those who will find the Lord. Many young converts, they won't have Christian parents at home, and you will be God's appointed person to feed their souls, to counsel, to guide them, to encourage them in your role as spiritual educator within that home. It's a sobering thought to remember you're also an example. Children notice everything, pick up on all. They observe you, they can discern your qualities, your faults as well. Nobody is as much of an observer of human character as a child is, and so we can't lose our temper, we can't behave in a way that will bring dishonor to the cause, put off the children, and never forget as well, you're appointed by the friend of sinners, Jesus himself, to be a friend to your children. Pray to God that He will give you a friendly heart. Pray that you will have affection, you will have care, you will have concern for them, because that's going to show that you'll visit them whenever they fall by the wayside. We need to have a real affection for our children, the cold individual who does the work merely out of duty, is actually a burden, not a blessing to the work. So we have the role of the teacher, the responsibilities of the teacher as well. Ideally, the Sunday school teacher, children's worker, will constantly examine himself or herself about the quality of the teaching they're given. You need to be self-critical to be a capable, capable teacher. 
How did that lesson go? You'll be asking yourself. What did I do right and what did I do wrong and what's the matter with my teaching when I'm losing quickly the attention of the group? In what way can I improve that? An able person who's also rather proud can never be as effective as a less able person who is practicing this self-examination, who is going over the different areas of the work that they've performed, and who is striving always for self-improvement. Be your best for God. That's what this is about. Assessment. The good Sunday school teacher and children's worker will aim to be interesting to the children. They're not speaking at the children, or even worse, on top of the children, but to the children. They're acutely aware of how much attention they are getting, of the response of them, because the response of children matters to him or to her. And if he's not getting through, he'll alter his tone, or he'll throw in an illustration, or he will have a strategy to adopt for recapturing that interest and getting that attention, and he'll get to know what it takes to keep their eyes bright, their heads up, and their hands still. A skill that we need to aim at. And often the loss of fluency and liveliness is because there's been a lack of preparation. And if that fault remains consistent and sustained, it leaves an indelible scar on the capacity of the teacher to communicate well if preparation is rushed. A few things gathered together as we run out the door. We're going to find the mind will be struggling all the while when we're trying to communicate the message and there'll be no spare brain cells left. For liberty of expression, we'll be tied up completely and fall all over the place. Poor preparation leads to desperation. And we'll be constantly repeating the same thing and using the well-worn phrases and expressions again and again and again. And it will lead to teachers being oversensitive to every disturbance there is in the class. And instead of overcoming that, by the power of interest, we'll just be constantly breaking off to chastise the restless youngsters. A good Sunday school teacher will avoid drum banging. I think that happens probably more with youth leaders than anything. It's a danger in that area more than anywhere else. What I mean by drum banging, it's a teacher who's always going on about the same thing. For example, you hear in the news that maybe some singer has taken their life and the children know they're in for a rough time that Sunday because that's what they're going to get. Or there's a national disaster, or there's a tragedy that happens, and they know they're going to get 20 solid minutes on the nearness of death, the terrors of hell. We teach these things consistently. But we need to avoid predictable drum banging. Children have a knack of remembering what we said last time out better than we do. It's important that we remember to have eye contact with them. Look at those children. 
keep in touch with them. It's a language of friendliness, sincerity, and urgency. And one of the oldest pieces of Sunday school children's meeting advice is always have a plan B. Don't go into Sunday school class or children's meeting without one. And when those children and you're looking at them and they're becoming glassy-eyed and their minds are clearly a thousand miles away from where you're trying to get them, or maybe you've become tied up and your lesson has degenerated into a hopeless muddle and you're wondering, how am I ever going to get back on course here? The only remedy is to have something up your sleeve, something in reserve. A plan B, it might be a story that you've been thinking about and fleshing out in your mind, an illustration, an anecdote, a word of testimony that you can immediately bring out and cause the children to raise their heads and pay rapt attention again. But it's vital to have a plan B. It mightn't even relate to the subject you're trying to talk about that day. That doesn't particularly matter. It's better to use it than keep on stumbling through disaster. Sometimes I do that in preaching. And if nobody notices a disconnection between where we have been and where now I go, well, that just shows how much plan B was needed. Always have a plan B in reserve. We're going to emphasize the remit of the teacher here, the remit of the teacher the emphasis has to be on evangelism. And you know something? That's hard. That's why many preachers would prefer to give a doctrinal message, theological treatise, teaching message, because you can go so many places, so many areas in Scripture and do that. The most difficult department of ministry is undoubtedly evangelism. Why? Because you can end up saying the same things the same way all the time. And when you're preaching the cross, as we must, we'll mention that in a moment or two, you can just travel the same path to the cross with the same words all the time. It becomes absolutely boring. Not innovative, not interesting. Evangelism is difficult to keep interest going there. Yes, it is easy to teach the same thumbnail gospel every week and rattle it off. To press home the gospel properly, however, dealing with the different aspects of sin and unbelief and touching on and speaking up the wonders of God's salvation. Oh, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. We need to maintain a fresh and challenging emphasis week by week, and that is a difficult thing. We need to give an explanation of those great concepts of sin and punishment. Our society has left all of that behind, knows nothing about it. The children won't understand unless they are carefully explained Children don't understand today the notion of punishment. They think that's just vindictive rage and revenge. It's ugly, it's vicious, it's primitive. And they've been conditioned to think that way. Oh yes, moderate punishment. Aimed at correction, they can understand and get some of that. 
the punishment from God, the reality of hell, that's way beyond their cultural programming. They need to be brought to understand the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the truth of God, a God who owes nothing to us, and yet in mercy gives everything to us, poor, fallen sinners. They need explanation. I'm going to use the word expiation. It's not the easiest. It means the atonement. We need to get them to Calvary. And we need not to fall into the trap of presenting the gospel without getting to the cross. It's amazing how quickly we can slump into this fundamental error of presenting the gospel without Calvary, not getting to the very heart of the gospel, the greatest demonstration of the amazing love of Christ. Make sure as well that your work is worthy of respect. Accommodating children in our teaching doesn't mean we become babyish or banal or trite or empty. If we are babyish and our illustrations are pretty much juvenile, the children will be just be turned off. Never forget we represent the great God of heaven. We are seeking to promote reverence and great respect for the deep mercies of God. And so while we are accommodating to the age of the child, we express things simply, but we must not oversimplify. Great care is required in this. Spurgeon used to warn his Sunday school teachers, don't descend to the level of mere storytelling. So that kids are looking at the Bible and sort of thinking, and reading it the way they would the Beano or the Dandy with these fictional characters, or the way they would consider a film produced by Disney or Pixar, and they, they know that's not reality. We are dealing with realities. These are real events. These actually happened. People experienced these things. What the Bible records is truth beginning to end. And we need to ensure that that is what we are communicating. And we certainly must avoid Christianizing the children. That's the thought that, you know, if we teach the Word of God line upon line, chapter by chapter, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, Monday night by Monday night, Tuesday night by Tuesday night, do you know what will happen here? You know, the, the children themselves will gradually become Christians. And as time goes on, we can fall into the trap of treating them all as kind of insiders, although there has never been a spiritual crisis that there needs to be in their heart and in their lives. The essence of evangelism is to keep the issues, the terms of entry into the kingdom of God plainly, clearly before the class. Enter ye in by the straight gate. There are few that find it, and don't fudge or encourage presumption on their part. Let me bring these practical guidelines to a close by thinking of not only the assembly of the Sunday school, atmosphere of the Sunday school, application of the Sunday school, but achievement of the Sunday school. What are we looking for? We're looking for conversion. And here's the blessed truth. Children can and will be saved 
by the power of God operating through the word of the gospel. That's what our Lord was thinking about in Matthew 21, the verse 15 and the verse 16, when those chief priests and scribes, and uh, they were really displeased, highly agitated, and they said, hearest thou what these children say? And Jesus saith unto them, yea, have ye never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. So he's quoting Psalm 8 and 2, and he's doing it rather ironically, as far as these men are concerned. These are priests, chief priests. These are scribes. These are men of the Word. These are people who should know all of the Old Testament. They had read everything. They were the recognized experts. Well, what does the Lord mean when He turns to them and says, have ye never read? Oh, yes, they'd read that psalm. They certainly had many times as they led the worship in the synagogues. They'd probably spoken upon it, explained it on numerous occasions, but they had never read it our Savior is saying, read it as to see it or grasp its meaning. And so when he saw it fulfilled in front of their eyes, children praising God, coming to Christ. They didn't see that as the fulfillment of Psalm 8 and verse 2. And many church leaders can be in the same position today. They know a great deal about Scripture. But when you challenge them, have you never seen this? Have you not noticed the great compassion the Lord has for children? Have you not considered the possibility of children in your town and sitting being converted through child evangelism? That's not a major focus. Conversion, it is our focus. Glorification certainly is. God, as we said at the beginning, is wonderfully glorified by the conversion of young people right down to the little children because in those child conversions, His power is shown in various ways. For example, He's overcoming challenges here because think of the fickleness of the child. But God is solemnizing the heart, arousing the conscience, even of the most fickle. Think of the fun-loving nature of the child as well. What does the child want? It wants to eat. It wants to enjoy things. And yet the power of God is such that he can override these dominating instincts for fun, for immediate gratification, and bring little children to hunger and thirst for salvation and for pardon. The challenges and the conquests. The grace of God is magnified. Ours is the only religion in the world that rests upon the principle of grace. No wonder God loves the salvation of children. They're so small. What can they do to merit eternal glory? Absolutely nothing. What can they achieve by themselves? What noble, greater, wonderful works can they accomplish? They're only children. But for those reasons, they are perfect candidates for a demonstration of God's amazing grace. The grace of God is magnified. Children are capable of deep repentance and solid faith. They can have patience. They can endure affliction for Christ. They can learn to serve Him. Again, I go to Spurgeon, and he brought in a very erudite illustration when he talked about a boy that went to Smithfield, and he wanted to see the, the burning of the martyrs, rather gruesome and gory sight and all of that. And when the little boy walked back to his neighborhood, some critical adult asked him, where have you been? And he said, I've been to Smithfield. To Smithfield? Why were you there, boy? 
What's a boy doing at Smithfield watching the burnings? The lad looked at the adult and he replied, Sir, I went there to learn the way. In his young mind, he was willing, if it ever came to it, to yield up his life for Jesus Christ. They can show incredible courage. Exertion is where we end. Sunday school teachers are frontline missionaries these days. If you're a teacher every week, you're speaking to unconverted souls, you will need the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, and meekness, and temperance. May the Lord powerfully work those graces within you and bless you abundantly, and may He encourage His people right across the church in every part of it to see this possibility of reaching out to a rising generation. May His blessing rest upon all of those who gather and collect the children, every driver, every helper, every teacher, every person who faithfully organizes, oversees, encourages a Sunday school or a children's meeting, and may God stand by them and defend them all who are standing as defenders and protectors and deliverers of children. These people have huge significance. May they all be kept in health and in assurance and in vigor and in diligence as well. And to all who are not engaged actively in Sunday school or children's work, I pray you'll be challenged to give yourself to the work. How do you do that? Give the Lord your heart. Give Him your talents. Give Him your time. Pray. Pray. As we were encouraged here last night, with children under attack, pray for this next generation that Christ would be glorified in numerous childhood conversions and may God reignite the vision for Sunday schooling in our land. Today is the greatest opportunity you will ever have. Opportunities never come Let me repeat that. Opportunity never comes. Opportunity is here. And we need to take it. We'll bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name today. And we thank thee for the great facility of a God-honoring, Christ-glorifying Calvary-presenting Sunday school and children's meeting. We lament the fact that so many places today don't have this anymore. Lord, ever keep a passion, a fire burning, a burden pressing, that this is what we need to put great resources into. Be with all of our Sunday school teachers, all of our children's workers. Encourage them. We know the devil's attacks upon them are many. We pray that thou wilt lift them up. We pray that thou wilt sustain them. We pray that thou wilt bring them on to even greater exertions and results to glorify thy great name, to save a generation that's perishing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.